0: He also introduced John Calvin to the wider world of the Reformation, the politics, and all the things that were happening, the, the threat to the Reformation from the Emperor Charles V, and the uh, crucially, Calvin was there during these, what are called the religious colloquies, these meetings between Catholics and Protestants trying to find some common ground, and, and Calvin attends these. So he, he enters onto the, the main stage of the Reformation, and so these years in Strasbourg are, are the making of him. So that when he returns to Geneva in 1541, he's a much different person than the one they threw out in uh, a few years earlier.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Now, on the Credo Podcast, we often say that theological ideas do have consequences, And I think we see that, maybe most of all, when we're looking at history, history is so pivotal, so crucial, so essential, uh, not only to the Christian faith, but to the ongoing implications of that faith for today. One of my favorite moments and really periods and eras of church history is certainly the 16th century and the Reformation in particular. Now, there are so many aspects of the Reformation we could talk about on this podcast but one of them is Geneva. And of course, when we think of Geneva, we think of none other than a figure like John Calvin. Of course, many of our listeners may be familiar with John Calvin already. Perhaps you've read some or all of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, or perhaps you've opened uh, one of his commentaries, perhaps his his commentary on Romans, for example, or maybe on some of the Old Testament books of the Bible as you've prepared for preaching. But Whatever book you've read, have you ever thought about calvin's life, and specifically, what were some of the events, some of the relationships, some of the friendships, even some of those enemies that he encountered, and what were what was actually the context in which this work, the Institutes of the Christian religion, which we now uh, consider in, in such a famous uh, monumental manner, how did this actually take place in the first place? What inspired Calvin to write these institutes? And what was some of the context around which they were written and even considered controversial for his time? You know, it's hard to think of anyone better to come on the Credo podcast to talk about Calvin and his institutes than Bruce Gordon. He is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School. And he's written a number of books uh, really as an expert on Calvin. Uh, he's written, for example, a book with Princeton uh, back in 2016 called John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he not only looks at the development, really the genesis of Calvin's Institutes, but even their reception from the 16th century to the modern day. Of course, Bruce Gordon is known to many by his uh really significant biography of John Calvin with Yale University Press uh, published back in 2009 a biography that not only looks at some of Calvin's theology but really gets into the weeds of the reformer's life, his controversies and even his contribution It's It's so great to have Bruce Gordon on the Credo Podcast now because he is actually coming out with a couple of other volumes this year Uh, I have to mention uh, two of them. Uh, With Oxford, he is uh, releasing the Oxford Handbook of Calvin and Calvinism. And he also has written uh, another biography, uh, this time of Zwingli himself, a subtitle, God's Armed Prophet. And again, with Yale University Press, so excited, so eager to get my hands on this one as he transitions uh, not only from Geneva, but to the broader Swiss Reformation. Bruce, so great to have you on the Credo podcast.
0: Thank you, Matthew. I'm delighted to be here. I'm So happy to be able to join you.
2: I think that many of our listeners at some point, uh, maybe it was when they were a student or perhaps they still are students and uh, their theology or their history professor is having them read through a portion of Calvin's Institutes, but regardless, I think most of our listeners at some point uh, have really dived uh, deep into part or all of Calvin's Institutes. And of course, you have written so much, uh, not just about Calvin's Institutes, but about really their reception in the centuries after the 16th century. Uh, what what I'd like to do in the, the short time we have is actually take a step back uh, before we jump into that conversation and talk about really the beginning of John Calvin, especially uh, we, maybe our listeners are familiar with someone like a Martin bootser and uh, the ways that he so influenced Calvin uh, so early on as Calvin is, is really thinking through his theology and starting to, to develop it. So let's start there. Let's go back to the 1530s. And can you mm-hmm. introduce us to really this this younger Calvin of the 1530s? and And, and maybe you can put your finger for a minute on uh, some of his really maybe painful experience when he's mm-hmm. kicked out of Geneva and mm-hmm. spends mm-hmm. time uh, with uh, others, but but in particular Martin Bootser.
0: Yes. Uh... Calvin's life is 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 one in which, in some ways, we know quite a lot about, and in other ways, very little about. And his younger years, we know he came from uh, Picardy, that uh, that he that he grew up speaking that language, the French, for which he's so famous, was actually a, more or less a second language for him. Uh, he studied in Paris. Uh, But we only have bits and pieces of his life in those early years. We know that he became involved with the uh, circle of reformers in the city, um, that he connected with some quite uh, senior people and was involved in a number of incidents uh, most famously a lecture given by the rector of the university, Nicholas Kopp which many people think that Calvin perhaps had written himself which defended the evangelical ideas uh, Calvin uh, had a, a circle of friends in in Paris and in the south of France that he, many of whom although they stayed Catholic he kept uh, long years later and continued to be in correspondence with. He fled at at a certain point during the the affair of the placards when these uh, statements of evangelical faith were nailed up around the city, including famously on the bedroom door of the king, uh, Calvin. Uh, The persecution began. Calvin fled. He went to the south of France. We don't know exactly what he did there. He made his way uh, eventually to Basel, The Swiss city of Basel on the Rhine. We know that he had some sort of uh, conversion experience, but we don't know exactly what it was. And we don't really know quite what he converted to. It it seems to have been a kind of humanist, uh, uh, Bible-centered faith. But it, it would be hard to call it Protestantism because we don't know exactly. He doesn't describe it in any uh, detail other than to say that there was a sort of inward movement to the gospel. He's in Basel. He's He doesn't speak the language. He never learned to speak uh, German. He spoke French. And with learned people, he spoke Latin, uh, of course. It's the city of the great humanist Erasmus. Uh, and Calvin was an ambitious person. he had studied law. He didn't have a theology degree. He didn't study Theology university. He studied law amongst some of the greatest teachers of law in France. But he was a lawyer. He was ambitious. He wanted to be a humanist author. He had already edited a text of the Roman author Seneca. Uh, he wanted to be like Erasmus, this this famous person. And um, he goes to the city of Basel, and he hopes that that's going. Uh, to happen. But he's also had this experience of persecution in his native land and the way in which those who f- supported the evangelical movement, by which we mean those who supported gospel preaching and the centrality of the Bible, were being uh, put under a great deal of pressure. And when he goes, he writes this. This small book, which is the first version of the Institutes, he writes that in 1536, and he dedicates it to the King of France, Francis I, who, of course, never saw this. But, you know, Calvin at this point was a a nobody, uh, an aspiring author who writes this work, but his... In his dedication, he says why he, he does this he wants to defend his co-religionists in his native land and he wants to make the case that this evangelical faith is not a threat they are not it's not sedition and so he 's already thinking about his homeland, although he 's living in the Swiss city of Basel. The famous story is that he returns to France he does so on a couple of occasions um, uh, to sort out his uh, the affairs of his of his late father he 's returning. Back to Basel, but because of war, he has to make his way through Geneva. There, he has the famous encounter with Guillaume Ferrel, who will remain a friend to the end of his his life. Ferrel, famously, as Calvin describes it, looms up in front of him like an Old Testament prophet and tells him that had he, should he not stay in Geneva, that he, you know, his his salvation would be imperiled. And Calvin is, for one of the few times, Calvin ever writes that he was truly afraid. And uh, um, so he stays, and as you said, it's a disaster. Uh, from 1536 to uh, 1538, uh, he's there, he doesn't know. He's not trained in, as I say, in theology. He has no, he has no training in what we would call sort of ministry. He's, he's supposed to be preaching, he doesn't know how to do it. Um, there's problems with you know, liturgical observances and, and questions of con- the implementation of, of moral, oversight of morals, Geneva, is a city in turmoil. Uh, Calvin is seen as an outsider. He's a Frenchman. Uh, the Genevans, that, that's a problem that will plague the rest of his life. And uh, a long story made very short he and Pharrell are kicked out um, and, and he has to leave. He goes to Zurich, which is the city of Heinrich Bullinger, the successor of, of Huldrych uh, Zwingli, who, and Bullinger is really the major figure emerging in the 1530s, leader of the Reformed Church. Um, but more importantly for the story, as you say, um, he makes his way to Strasbourg, where uh, the great reformer Martin Buzer was. And Buzer, I think, as Calvin would recognize later, although he was not uncritical of Buzer in many ways, of uh, uh, Buzer was the making of John Calvin as uh, a reformer. Calvin, Buzer recognized, you know, because the Institutes that had appeared in 1536 had been a great success. Uh, Buzer recognized that this highly intelligent, um, gifted person um, would be could be a great reformer, but he needed to learn how. And Bootser made him a pastor in the French-speaking church in in Strasbourg. And over the next couple of years, basically, Calvin learned how to be a pastor. He learned how to preach. He learned how to write biblical commentaries. He learned how to do oversight of a, of a parish church. Um, he learned all of these things so that when he's... Uh, uh, but he he also it, it's more than that. Through being in Strasbourg, which is on the Rhine, so on the sort of on the border between France and the Holy Roman Empire, which is the German lands where Luther's Reformation was unfolding, he also introduced John Calvin to the wider world of the Reformation, the politics and all the things that were happening, the the threat to the Reformation from the Emperor Charles V, and the uh, crucially, Calvin was there during these what are called the religious colloquies, these meetings between Catholics and Protestants trying to find some common ground. And, and Calvin attends these. So he, he enters on to, the, to the, the, the main stage of the Reformation. And so these years in Strasbourg are, are the making of him, so that when he returns to Geneva in 1541, he's a much different person than the one they threw out in uh, a few years earlier.
2: What I find so uh, telling about this period of of Calvin's life is uh, this. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but but maybe we could even call Bootser a, a type of spiritual father
0: to oh, Calvin. Yes, absolutely. No, that's that's not stretching it at all.
2: Uh, one of the reasons I mention this is because um, we we sometimes. Uh, approach Calvin as if and we often come to to maybe the more mature peri- periods and decades of his life, fifteen forties, fifteen fifties, and we we see there so much of the fruit of of a very productive uh, pastor and theologian and biblical commentator, of course, as well as a preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like you mentioned early on, it uh, is. is Brilliant as Calvin may be, as, as uh in in the 1530s, for example, nonetheless, uh, you you really see so much of the the raw uh, mistakes that he makes. Um go. Yeah, yeah. So many of the yeah, yeah. controversies that that come out of them. Um, maybe you could zero in on Bootser just for another second here. And uh, I mean, when he's there, um, there he, he's even Calvin's even living in close proximity. Uh, yeah. He's he's learning how to go about uh, liturgy and uh, yeah. discipline, even in the yeah. church, and maybe in ways yeah. that could have helped him earlier on. But uh, yeah. also yeah. his his own. They're having theological discussions too. Or,
0: uh, oh yes, yes, he, we have records of of, of Calvin talking about. It. It's also where he he will meet his future wife and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, who grew up in a sort of Anabaptist family in, uh, uh, in in Strasbourg. So it's his time there during the late uh, 1530s is absolutely transformative. And we know that, um, as I mentioned earlier, he enters onto the wider stage, and part of that is that. In Martin Bützer's house, where they would gather, uh, some of these famous figures of the Reformation, people like Wolfgang Capito and, and others, many who were passing through uh, Strasbourg, uh, would meet in Bützer's house and talk about theology. We know from Calvin himself that this that this happened, because um, he tells a funny story at one point that uh, he he is. Uh, afraid that Butzer is talking about him because they the conversation will switch to German, oh. uh, and he would hear his name mentioned. But Calvin, of course, did not know German. <laughs> he he spoke French and 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 Latin. So he 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 became suspicious that they were mm. talking critically yes. of him when they would switch to to German. Uh, but we know that this was a very rich time. This is where he came in contact with people like Philip Melanchthon and and others that would be. Uh, crucial because, and they remain crucial, Calvin was never a singular figure sort of towering above everybody else. He, all his life, um, was dependent on a circle of people and he regarded Martin Bootser as being like an uncle, although he was not uncritical. Calvin wasn't uncritical of anybody, but he, 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 but he always believed that Bootser had been his, his mentor. um, And he acknowledged that uh, freely. He does that in the, his preface to the Psalms commentary, which he writes in the, in the 1550s. uh, So that, and, and he, he says that the, the, Butzer's commentary on the Psalms remains for him the greatest, you know, work of mm. of that uh, on that book. He praises it to, and and speaks of its transformative effect on him. So in 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 almost every respect, Martin Butzer is is the crucial figure. He's not he's not the only one, but he is the crucial figure in making Calvin into a a reformer.
2: Mm. Now. I'd love to continue that line of thought, but, but maybe we should um, take a, a little bit of a, a tangent here because uh, is it not also in Strasbourg where uh, Calvin is not only uh, indebted to, to Bootser in so many ways, but he also has an opportunity to uh, rub shoulders, if we could say that, with some of these Strasbourg Anabaptists. He does, and this is going to be informative as well. I mean, we're we're as we're transitioning in Calvin's life um, to the 1540s, for example, and he starts to work on later editions of his Institutes. Um, and you mentioned a minute ago even um, his great and ongoing, continual concern to defend uh, the Reformation with. Um, in the context of of France even though he's not there uh, that yep. too has has um, significant implications as he's trying to help uh the french differentiate between okay what is true reformation in in calvin's yep. eyes and and what is more yep. radical how yep. does all of this play into from from Butzer to some of these strasbourg anabaptists to to the french context how mm-hmm. does all of this play into some of his um additions or uh, modifications of his institutes as yeah. we turn to the late 1530s and 1540s
0: yeah it well it plays an enormous role in this one of the things that we need to be mindful of the institutes is a remarkable book in the 16th century and it's a remarkable book in the pro- within the context of the protestant reformation because no other major doctrinal work is so heavily revised through one edition after another. The book, Constantly is in a state of change right through to the version that we are most familiar with, which is in 1559, the Latin version of 1559, which is Calvin's last Latin. There's one more French edition. Uh, so it's a book that is. Uh, I, I think I referred to it at one point. It's it's an almost an autobiographical book. In the book we can we can chart Calvin's own progress. In on a variety of ways, his intellectual progress because it, um, each edition, which always becomes longer, reflects what he's been reading. Uh, we can we can we can date. You know, he reads his way through the Church Fathers. He reads his way through the scholastic writers of the Middle Ages. He reading he's reading, of course, the work of his contemporaries. Calvin never studied theology at university. He is the ultimate autodidact. He he teaches himself. But he also, but it's not just himself, he's learning from others. He, from an early stage with beginning in Strasbourg, he's exchanging his works with others who are giving him feedback on it. Mm-hmm. Not always what he wants to hear, but nevertheless, he, his work ex- exists within a network of of people who are constantly in contact uh, with each other. Anabaptism is very interesting because until he goes to Strasbourg, Calvin really had very little exposure to Anabaptism. It wasn't something he hadn't seen it in. France. Uh, He'd been in Basel, which by the time he got there, there was very few Anabaptists still active in the city. Uh, But he gets to Strasbourg, and some of the Strasbourg uh, reformers, people like Wolfgang Capito, um, had been at points very sympathetic towards the uh, Anabaptists and took a less hostile view than we find in in other places. So there was... um, this was—he he arrived in Strasbourg where there was a major debate about Anabaptists and a very active community of very prominent people. So that was really Calvin's initiation into this. But he also arrives in in Strasbourg not very long uh, after the the great uh, moment of the the most the most extraordinarily dramatic moment. Perhaps of the Reformation, which was the Anabaptist Kingdom at the city of Munster, which was further north from from Strasbourg, this absolutely cataclysmic event which had uh, resulted in, in chaos, the de- declaration of, a, of an Anabaptist king, um, and then the uh, horrible slaughter as the, the, the city was besieged and, and ransacked by both Catholic and Protestant. Troops. So this traumatized the whole generation of what were what was the danger of radical religion. So this event, which unfolds really between 1534 and 36, is right when when just after. Just before Calvin arrives, and so he's part of this trauma of everybody's fearing these 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 Anabaptists, and for the rest of his life, and we see that in the uh, Institutes, he's call- when he talks about the church, when he's talking about the sacraments such as infant baptism, um, Calvin is forever referring to uh, the Anabaptists as the those who would undermine body of Christ with their notion of separation their notion of rejection of the magistrate's role in in the church and of course what he saw as their most pernicious denial of of infant baptism, which undermined, of course, his thinking about the covenantal relationship uh, of, of the church. So yes, I mean, the Anabaptists are a kind of ghost that hangs over the whole, the, all the revisions of the Institutes because for Calvin, they are an image of how this could go terribly wrong and what, what that would look like if, if the true polity was not Uh, Defended, but you're also right at the same time. He's all his life he has an eye towards the Reformation in France, and that is that you know his close contacts with his his uh, countrymen and women um, as they're locked in struggle with with the Catholics, unlike. you know, in in Switzerland or in in parts of Germany, there the, precar- the situation for Protestants is extremely precarious. And mm-hmm. and Calvin's great fear, which is realized at the end of his life, is that there will be religious war in France, and there is, of course, by the 1560s. So, um, much of what Calvin does is is geared towards bringing the Reformation uh, to France. But I, I'll just say this quickly then. But the, you know you've got, you've raised the Anabaptists, you've raised France. All of these different aspects of his life are autobiographically reflected in the Institutes. Mm-hmm. All the the conflicts that he's involved in, all the events, these reflect and, and deeply shape what he actually writes about. So that you can see in each uh, uh, edition, you can you can kind of work out what was it that was occupying his mind at the time, because these issues are suddenly uh, treated at greater length because he's thinking about anti-ternitarians, he's thinking of, about you know Andreas Osiander on and what he sees as imputed righteousness of Christ mm-hmm. as a as a great error. so all these things or Servetus, um, I'm sure we'll mention at some point, but uh, uh, all these things are are these real life events make their way into the institutes.
2: This is such a, a helpful way of approaching the institutes because um, oftentimes, maybe innocently enough, uh, people can assume that um, the institutes they hold in their hand today, which I'm guessing uh, may be, say, the the last edition of 1559. Yeah, the last
0: Latin, yeah, the last Latin of 1559.
2: Yeah. Yeah, oftentimes, uh, so, sometimes uh, people can assume, well, the Calvin just had it all together, <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we have this 1559 Latin edition, and uh, here we see just the, the full uh, fruit of, of all of his theological labor. But uh, as you've been mentioning, actually if we, we trace through the decades, 1530s, 40s, and 50s, um, so much of his own interactions, um, both with friends and enemies, yeah uh, we actually discover no there's there's a bit of development uh Calvin himself is learning and and he's adding and uh at times even um trying to address uh so many of the new new threats he perceives mm-hmm. now this is of course occurring uh in his own social context but um we could also mention uh that it's occurring theologically um so on the one hand there's I think there's probably some truth to, uh, especially when we c- compare Calvin to others. That uh, t- to saying, well, uh, Calvin does have a, a strong. Um, there-, there seems to be a lot of continuity, a strong a uh, pattern of continuity throughout the Institutes from 1530s to 1550s, and yet at the same time, though uh, we-, we probably need to add. That well, uh, but there's also development I mean when he's writing these institutes early on they're it's it's small it's not these these large um, volumes that we have today it's it's actually mm-hmm. quite small, mm-hmm. and then uh with with each edition um sometimes uh sections are elaborated on mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. sometimes new sections are added, mm-hmm. sometimes small or big things are changed
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh I mean we could there's so many examples, but um, in your mind, um, for the sake of our listeners as they're they're trying to to wrestle with, okay, what what are some of the the bigger changes? Um, could you put your finger or maybe just one or two as, as sort of examples uh, of of some of the development that's taking place in his theology?
0: sure um i mean i think it's fair to say that calvin rarely changed his mind uh, on you know that we we if you look at the various editions of the institutes you you don't look at something from the 1540s and think oh he's saying the opposite of what he was saying 10 years earlier that that's not the case it's much more of a a, a situation of of evolution and You know, Calvin, you know, it's perhaps helpful for us to remind ourselves what what he saw the Institutes as being. Calvin didn't really like the word theology uh, very much because he associated that with the medieval theological faculties. And he preferred the word doctrine, doctrina. And and because he saw what he saw, but I might just use the term theology for for sort of... um, is a more handy thing but what he saw doctrine is as being as is the realization of the the of the word in the world the interpretation of of scripture the the fullness of revelation for calvin doctrine is about what god has revealed to us and that what god has revealed is sufficient what God has chosen not to reveal to us, we don't need to know. And that's why he's, you don't find in his Institutes the sort of reflection on God's, you know, whether intellect or will or primary. You don't, there's lots of medieval background in his, his thinking, but he's, he begins with what we can know. And that's what he sees the Institutes as being. It's an interpretation of what we can know in terms of doctrine and what he sought to do was to give that explanation of doctrine the right order the right structure and that's what he's doing through all these uh, revisions of the institutes he's trying to find the right order um, the idea that doctrine is actually embedded in creation it's part of god's order of creation and therefore it's important for calvin to find that you that you st- Find the, you know what we might call the right structure of doctrine. So beginning as he does with the knowledge of God, taking us through the four books of the Institutes, and he says in 1559, I think I've got it right as far as I as I can. And for him, as for for many, that structure of. Doctrine or theology is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, which he, as many did, regarded as the theological core of the New Testament. So, what he's trying to find is that that order of theology, which or doctrine, which is in. Romans, and he wants to write a book which is for his age, which will explain doctrine in its biblical uh, foundations. So that's what he's he's trying to do, and and through the the decades of the of the institutes, as I said before, these it. The section, and you can see they grow. Many of them grow exponentially. As Calvin is involved in debates with Anabaptists, as I say, with anti-Trinitarians, entr- or with Lutherans over the doctrine of justification, or of course the the great division within the Protestantism. Uh, particularly the lord's supper uh, the whole notion of you know what how can we speak about um, real presence in in the sacrament uh, uh, the the nature of the church so i mean and of course famously um the doctrine of predestination which he at a certain point moves which he, he says is is closely connected to the doctrine of providence but then he moves uh, the doctrine, his discussion of, of predestination into book three. There's a lot of different thinking about why he does this. He seems to separate providence and predestination. That part of that um, is, of course, during the 1540s uh, and 1550s, he's attacked ferociously for his idea of double predestination. And that attack comes not only from those who oppose his notion of a kind of arbitrary God who seems to randomly choose who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved. But it's also coming from considerable disquiet within the reformed church people like Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, who who are very uncomfortable with the language of double predestination. They prefer to have some sort of language of, to speak of election, but rather not to speak about God's uh, damnation. So he's that debate, which is, he's embroiled in, of course, Famously, with the uh, execution of Michael Servetus in 1553, predestination becomes uh, a part of the Institutes, which, you know, grows. During these controversies, Calvin originally in the Institutes had very little to say about the doctrine of the Trinity, not because he wasn't Trinitarian, but he didn't feel it was necessary to say very much about it. Well, by the later part of the 1550s, when he he discovers that in Geneva there are anti-Trinitarians, many of them amongst the Italian Exile community suddenly, the doctrine of the Trinity acquires a great deal more emphasis in the institutes he um Uh, originally doesn't have a great deal to say about the doctrine of justification. I think in many ways he kind of takes over Luther's position on this. So he doesn't write a great deal about justification. Well, again, in the 1550s he gets embroiled with a debate with um, a very controversial Lutheran named uh, Andreas Osiander and suddenly we find Calvin writing at much greater length in, in the Institutes on the doctrine of justification and therein he explicitly refutes by name at considerable length. So, I mean, the, the Trinity, predestination, justification, but also in Book Four of the Institutes, which is um, you know very much about the institutional form of of the Church. That growth. Uh, uh, v- exponentially when, because of, you know, Calvin's years of actually running a church, mm-hmm. um, and, and his experience, uh, of that. So, so, you know, you can point to a, ver- a range of theological questions that if you trace them through the institutes, um, no, it's not in terms that he, as they say, contradicts himself, but they are more thoroughly treated as he goes along and you can connect them with, uh, Concerns, debates, controversies that he's involved in, and he feels he needs to answer on those points, and he develops them at greater length.
2: So helpful, you know. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that as Calvin is developing uh, from from his younger years, and as he's writing these institu- institutes, that uh, we not only see uh, so much of his his theological development uh, as, as he elaborates at points and, and brings in some of the, the seasoned wisdom of, of the controversies he's been through. But we also see Calvin develop in terms of his, um, maybe we could call it a, a, a more well-rounded scholarly mind. Uh, what do mm-hmm. I mean? Well, um, f- sometimes when, when people think about Calvin and his institutes, they think, oh, this is just Calvin and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, though, on the one hand, Calvin, certainly, uh, anyone who's read his Institutes knows that um, the Scriptures, oh, goodness, they are pervasive um, mm-hmm. from, from beginning mm-hmm. to end. At the same mm-hmm. time, though, uh, if that's all we said, we might overlook so much of what Calvin becomes. Uh, for example, and there, there's many examples we could point to, but... Um, I can't help but think of, um, well, a number of scholars, including yourself, um, have, have made this point of figures like um, Michael Obermann or David Steinmetz, and mm-hmm. you, of course, as well, have, have made the point that, well, Calvin is also becoming a patristic scholar. And you start mm-hmm. to, to notice it come out uh, in his exegesis, but even his mm-hmm. institutes. Mm-hmm. Um, others have also pointed out that... Um, it's not just uh, the patristic or classical heritage, but also Calvin is engaging, sometimes in a negative way, sometimes in a very positive way, with many of the ancient philosophers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Think, for example, of of Plato or Cicero and and so many others. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you could speak to this for a minute uh, because uh, as much as Calvin is a biblical commentator, as much as he is a preacher of scripture, I mean, he devotes his life to this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, Calvin is engaging and, and retrieving and incorporating um, everything from ancient philosophy to some of the classical Christian voices of the past.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Calvin uh, was a humanist. He, uh, In many ways, he was a humanist in the tradition of... Uh, Erasmus, the great scholar of the Dutch scholar who was in Basel and in the Low Countries, who was the inspiration for so many of the Reformation, although, of course, he he remains within the Roman Catholic uh, Church. But Erasmus's view that basically antiquity and Christianity were fully rec- uh, reconcilable in that antiquity. The wisdom of antiquity finds its fulfillment in Christianity. Now, um, you, you know, you mentioned Zwingli. Zwingli was directly connected with Erasmus. He took the extreme view that he expected to find some of the virtuous uh, classical writers in, in heaven, which outraged a uh, number of people. Calvin does not say that. But what he, he does believe is is that a classical education, an education in the Greek and Latin philosophy, literature, uh, medicine, history, was an essential part of a Christian education. And so that when he sets up his Geneva Academy towards the end of his life in 1559— Before people enter into the study of ministry, they are given a classical education. They they learn very good Latin. They study Greek. They will also later study Hebrew, so the recovery of languages. But Calvin himself tells us that he reread Cicero every year. He, he he his first work was a commentary on seneca his institutes is full of allusions to the classical literature and philosophy uh, we don't know there's often debated about you know how much his, his, he read plato but we certainly know that the influence of plato on on calvin he uses images of the sun he uses images of the cave he uses uh, plato's uh, uh, image of, of the body as the, as, the, as the sort of prison of the soul. Um, there's plenty of allusions running through Calvin to classical literature, classical philosophy, classical history. He believed that, and, and of course he was a, a lawyer. Calvin believed that Roman law was the greatest creation of the ancient world. He revered Roman law, and you know, he was a lawyer. He in Geneva, he wrote many of the laws. He rewrote the the constitution. Um, for him, Roman law was a a divine creation of classical world. the 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 you know the the providential God is acting through antiquity, and that it's the the coming of Christianity was not a break with this, but was a continuity and so so for him uh, it would be unthinkable uh uh to to um, to you know to have an education without being learned in the classics and the classical languages if i can permit myself a slightly polemical moment um uh, uh, calvin university has has uh, has recently ceased with its classics department. Well, I'm afraid that there, w- you know, Calvin may be an unmarked grave, <laughs> but I can certainly tell you he'll be spinning in it wherever it is. <laughs> the idea that that you would have an education without the classics.
2: Oh, so so well said. Uh, it's a bit of irony, isn't it, in our own day, in which uh, so much of of uh, you know, as you're pointing out here, Western institutions, Western yeah. denominations, um, yeah. We, we find ourselves in this moment in which we are dispensing rather quickly, and, and I think foolishly, to show my cards, <laughs> yeah. um, with uh, so much yeah. of uh, classical literature, uh, classical uh, theology, classical ph- uh, philosophy, and, and mm-hmm. everything else that goes with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's so ironic because, uh, well, if we just go back in time, we might realize, well, our our very institutions and churches and denominations were actually based on this entire foundation; uh, otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't have existed in the first place. Yeah. And Calvin yeah. is, is of course, an excellent example.
0: <laughs> and and one you know it, it pervades every part of his his existence. You know his you know one of, for people who are not interested in Calvin at all in terms of his theology and wouldn't wouldn't align with. His his tradition, you know, secular people, scholars of literature, they can recognize in Calvin one of the great writers of the French Renaissance. His 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 command of language was extraordinary, both in French and and in Latin. This was the fruits of his his classical education. Mm.
1: Um, he is,
0: he, is, he was a great writer, and and um, and you know the Institutes. Bears witness. I mean, and I, I, I'm always a little nervous of of treating the institutes too much in isolation, because Calvin never did. He saw the institutes as but one part of a much bigger project, which included his biblical commentaries, his sermons, his tracts, uh, the catechism. All of these things formed part of a whole for him, which was a dedication, as you say. To the interpretation of, of the word, we think of Calvin as being a kind of one book wonder. Um, he never saw himself like that. Uh, he would he believed the Institutes should be read together with his biblical commentaries. But nevertheless, you know, he 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 saw this as he prided himself as being an author and 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 a great stylist and a man who was steeped in the in the wisdom of antiquity.
2: Bruce, you have been uh, so helpful here, uh, showing us uh, the big picture in which Calvin's institutes come to life, as well as taking us into some of the weeds. Um, I think that last comment you made is is uh, so informative, uh, because uh, if, if you know we were to bring Calvin himself uh, up from the grave and and uh, sit him down at the table with us, uh, I think you're right. I think he he would see his institutes as is an important contribution, surely, uh, but but one among really a nexus of uh, goodness, his preaching, his commentaries, his catechisms, which are, are mm-hmm. oftentimes overlooked, uh, the catechisms mm-hmm. and confessions he was involved with and wrote for the church. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have to, to give you an opportunity here because um, we're having this uh, conversation and and towards the end of two thousand twenty one, and uh, we're talking about Calvin. But but you actually have written and it's coming out. I think it's out now. Uh, also, a biography on Zwingli, uh, God's mm-hmm. armed prophet, as you call him. This is with mm-hmm. Yale University Press. Um, maybe uh, some of our listeners, uh, I, I imagine, uh, they're. They're going to want to, to grab onto this book as well, but maybe you could give them um, a bit of an incentive here. Uh, as, as we turn uh, from Calvin to Zwingli, it's not as if we have sort of left uh, one world um, to embrace another, though there, that may be true in some sense, but but given the 16th century, I mean, when, even when we talk about Calvin, right, uh, so much of his own making goes back to the Swiss,
0: Club. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and though one of Calvin's least favorite subjects was Huldrych Zwingli, yes. he avoided talking about him in almost <laughs> every uh, possibility because Zwingli was so controversial because of the great, uh, uh, well, extremely hostile divide between Zwingli and Luther. And Cal, one of the things Calvin saw himself as doing is being the person, a sort of outsider from France who could knit together the, the Protestant Parties and he blamed Zwingli for the part of that division. But, I, uh, you know, very briefly, I mean, Zwingli is the founder of the Reformed tradition. You know, he's there in the, in the 1520s. Calvin doesn't, you know, show up until the mid-1530s. So 15 years earlier, you know, Zwingli is creating what will become the Reformed tradition. And as I say, you know, although Calvin would never want to, to speak about it, if we look at the major... F- Sort of architecture of reformed religion, it comes out of Zurich and it comes largely not exclusively but largely from Holdrich Zwingli, whether you think of covenantal theology, whether you think of the defense against anabaptists of the of infant of infant baptism, uh, whether you think about uh, natural law, whether you all sorts of things that become central parts of the Reformed theology emerge out of Zürich. And, and, and so one of the things I talk about in this book is that Zwingli is the kind of artistic creator of the Reformed faith. He was a poet, he was a great musician, um, He is he, a great creative mind. Now, yes, of course, with Calvin and Butzer and others, uh, it will be refined and changed and reformed continuously through the 16th century. But if we're looking for the origins of it, it's, it's, it's there in Swingley. And, and, uh, uh, he dies suddenly on a battlefield, very controversial. That's why he's God's armed prophet, um, in 1531, the age of 47. But he has really created this, this movement. Calvin is the next generation. Now he will, he will do amazing things with it, but the foundation is there. And, and so Calvin is not the creator of the reform tradition. It's Swingley and, uh, his, his contemporaries. And so that's what interested me in doing this book, is, is sort of going back to the origins. Zwingli creates, in a, in a way, a form of Christianity, which becomes Reformed Christianity, that, that never really existed before. Mm. You know, there's no medieval model for this church. He's the one that envisaged what this liturgy is going to look like, what the sacraments are going to look like, what preaching, the role of preaching in the church, and it's as i say it's doctrinal contours these are these are what emerge in zurich in in in, in the 1520s um, and I, I don't want to claim everything for zwingli that would not be that would be historically and theologically uh, irresponsible but if you're looking for where does this come from you have to look at zwingli
2: mm. when we are Discussing someone like Calvin, uh, like you just said, w- we have to remember this, right? Because uh, Calvin, there's good reason why, not just chronologically, but even in terms of his own development, Calvin is a, is a, we could say, a second generation, yes. uh, reformer. And uh, so that that should, like like your own journey here, uh, writing on Calvin, but then going back to Zwingli and writing a biography on Zwingli, that should push us even to say, okay, well. Where, where are the origins here? And uh, where does the, what we today call this, you know, reformed tradition or reformed Christianity, how does this sprout out of the soil? Uh, yes. And I, I love the the subtitle there because um, just in my own studies of Zwingli, this is really one of the striking um, s- striking things about Zwingli, and, and so much of his, um, his program is, it does have this, uh, a bit of an edge to it, if we could say oh, yes. that, um, uh, in, in which he is in some ways pioneering some through some pretty tall grass uh, that Calvin is, is really going to be able to enjoy to navigate. Uh, it's a bit of irony that Calvin uh, and Zwingli are going to so disagree on, on so many facets or even just the mood of the, of the Reformation that, that Calvin wants to go about but would you? Am I right in thinking that when we talk about Zwingli, though, we have to understand that what you know you mentioned, uh, even his covenant theology, but but even in terms of his understanding of politics, I mean, he here he is dying on the battlefield. Um, yeah. I mean, this is uh, in in one sense similar, but in some sense very different from other reformers like like say Luther, for example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Zwingli is a man of enormous optimism. <laughs> he he believes that, that if people are just exposed to the word, they will be converted.
1: Mm.
0: And what he saw happening in his own land is that the Catholic parts of, of Switzerland were keeping the people from the word of God. And so at that point, um uh, he was persuaded that it fell to you know god's chosen to to liberate them and and so it creates an extremely uncomfortable relationship between religious and political authority and and that's why you know Zwingli is so controversial he believes that it is the role of the political rulers to intervene directly in for the sake of religion, and you know, Luther never had that sort of perspective. He always was much more suspicious of the of the role of political authority and and the church. Zwingli believed that he, that um, the state uh, he's, it's not a theocracy as often people will say. That's a misunderstanding. He does not. He himself never held any office in. In the state, he did not he did not he did not determine the uh, political Decisions of them, of the of of Zurich, but he was highly persuasive, and he believed that it was the role of the magistrates to bring the Reformation to what well, you know what we would call in a kind of coercive way, and that's why he was so con- controversial. And when he dies in battle, uh, even some of his contemporaries, such as Martin Bucer, with whom you began, who Zwingli knew well. Um, was very worried that Zwingli had made a terrible mistake, a miscalculation, mm. uh, by by so intertwining, uh, twining um, politics and the gospel, uh, and so so you know there's a there's a deeply problematic relationship. That's one of the things I want to explore in 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 the book. Is mm. this this. Very difficult relationship that you get in the Reformation between temporal and spiritual authority, and you know that's a that's a that's a question we're still debating. But it's 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 right there at the origins of the Reformation. You know, the problem Zwingli condones the drowning of the Anabaptists in the Limat River in the city. You know, what what do we make of that? Um, well, we, of course, we have Calvin and the burning of Servetus thirty years later, and you know so. How do we make sense of that? You know, it's is in in the kind of narrative of of the Reformation. There are a lot of difficult issues to try and work out what it means to to um, to say, you know, this is the renewal of the gospel. Mm. And 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 you know, critics of Zwingli said, you know, we we thought we left behind a persecuting church, and now we seem to have a new one.
2: Yeah, yeah
0: so this is this is what I'm exploring is this you know his sort of enormous optimism in that God's Word will prevail and the the complicated um, consequences yeah.
2: well, this is one of the reasons uh, this this complication that you're talking about uh, this is one of the reasons why I think many are going to to really enjoy this biography you've written because it is complicated, and it's as much as we we sort of look back with uh, historical glasses and sort of parse through so many of these issues, theology and politics alike, uh, at the time it was very messy and wasn't, yeah. always, wasn't always as clear as we, we think today. Um, the decisions they had to make were extremely difficult. Uh, sometimes they reflected on those and, and continued to think they were right. Other times they, they realized oh, perhaps we've made a mistake. So all of this said, um, I would just encourage our listeners uh, not only to grab uh, Bruce Gordon's biography of Calvin, uh, which I think you will enjoy in so many ways. Uh, He has written this with a very honest uh, lens. Uh, He doesn't try to um, hide so many of uh, Calvin's warts. You're going to see them all. And uh, I think that's a positive. Uh, to give us the, the, a real, honest picture of Calvin so that we understand him. Uh, but you, I would also encourage you to, to go and get uh, his new biography of Zwingli, also with Yale University Press. Um, this will help you uh, not only understand, like with Calvin, a uh, second-generation reformer, but this will also help you understand, well, how did this Reformed faith, um, how did it, it sprout Uh, out of the soil in the first place. Uh, Bruce, this has been so enjoyable to have you on the Credo Podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for for sharing so much of your wisdom here on Calvin.
0: Well, it's been a great pleasure to to join you. I feel like there's so much we can talk about, (laughs) but uh, it's been great
1: to have this time. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.